As we continue in the rhythm of grace this morning by coming now to the word of the Lord to receive his wisdom, we return once again to this study that we started two weeks ago that's going to take us all the way to Advent of next year and that we're calling Living in the Rhythm of Grace. And if you've missed it, let me catch you up a little bit. The rhythm of grace is simply the pattern of the gospel. We've just taken the biblical pattern of the gospel and just put language to it. And so we here at Rio, in our personal worship and in our corporate worship, and as we'll talk about in a minute, hopefully in our lives, it's where we're going, start by remembering God. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, that doesn't mean that we just remember that God exists. It's way, way more than that. We think on God. We meditate on God. We reflect on God. We remember who He is and what He's like and what His powers are, what His wisdom is like, His holiness, His justice, His mercy, His wrath, His grace. Who is this God? We reflect on our God. We remember Him, and then we do what, be, what is native to our instincts. It's the next gesture of the gospel, which is what? We're honest with him about ourselves. Why? Because when we see God for who he is, we suddenly become very self-aware and accurately so. We all of a sudden see ourselves for who we are and we recognize that we've done all kinds of things to offend this God that stand between us and him relationally and here's the kicker, that there's nothing we can do about. We can't go back into the past and undo them. We can't now start now doing good things so that we can outweigh them. It doesn't work that way. We are completely and utterly undone in the presence of this God, and we have no choice but to cry out to the God whom we have offended to, at his own expense, remove our offenses, which is exactly what he's done in Jesus. That's it. And so then we rush to the cross We rush to Christ. We come to the one who lived and who suffered and who died that he might take away our sin, remove all of the offenses that stand between us and God, past, present, and future, and who was raised from the dead that he might offer us forgiveness and eternal life. And we rest in his grace and in who we now are in him. And who is that? Because it's no longer just, I'm the creature, God, you're the creator. It's no longer just, I'm the servant, God, you're the master. It's no longer just, okay, I'm the subject, God, you're the king. Now it's also, I'm the redeemed, and you're the redeemer. And incidentally, the price that you paid to redeem me was infinite, which speaks to my value. But it speaks also to the fact that you paid a price to redeem me, and you're the owner, and I'm the owned, and that's a good thing. But more personally... Through, through the gospel, we come into the family of God. So now he's my father, and I'm his son, or you're his son or daughter. It's pretty remarkable, and it's completely humbling, and it humbles us to the point where having remembered him, having been honest with him about ourselves, having rested in his grace and in who he himself has made us, entirely of grace through Jesus, in humility, we open our hands and we turn our faces toward the heavens, and we do what we're doing now. We say, Lord, speak for your servant listens. Speak as the creator, I'm just the creature. Speak as the master, I'm just the servant. Speak as the king, I'm just the subject. Speak as the redeemer, I'm the one owned and redeemed by you. Speak as my infinitely wise heavenly father. Grant to me your wisdom because I need to be saved, not just from my sin, but from myself, from my selfishness, from my pride, from my ego, from my foolishness, from my limitations. God, I need your wisdom. Speak that I might then, last gesture, Go out and by the power of your spirit in a community with my brothers and sisters in Christ, do what you say. And notice where do what you say comes in this rhythm. It doesn't come before the grace, it comes after. 
way after. And we do what he says, not begrudgingly, not because it's the right thing to do, not because we're trying to win his favor. No, 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 that was given to us by Jesus. He earned by his perfect performance the favor of God that we enjoy. It's none of that. We do what he says because, well, we want to. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As we grow in relationship with him, we grow in love and appreciation for him. We grow in obedience to him. It's worship, and that's kind of where we're going this morning. So the rhythm of grace is simply the pattern of the gospel, and living in the rhythm of grace means interacting with that pattern so regularly through daily personal worship and weekly corporate worship, which is what we're doing now, that it then spins us off into life. It becomes the pattern by which we then learn to live and process absolutely everything. We do our personal worship that it might spin us off into our days. We do this together corporately that it might spin us off into our weeks. And we begin then to process our decisions, our attitudes, our successes and failures, all kinds of things, conflicts, relationships, values, identity, everything in terms of the rhythm of grace. God, who are you in this? Lord, here I am in this. Just being real honest. Okay, let me rest in your grace. Let me remember who I am. Let me know your forgiveness. All right, Lord, here's the deal. What do you want me to do? Speak for your servant listens. And then, here's the thing. I don't have the power to do it. I'm just going to let you know that in advance. So empower me by your spirit. Come alongside of me through your people and enable me to do what you would have me to do in this particular situation. Living in the rhythm of grace means that. And if you think about it then, that takes this idea of worship and it makes it far more than just something you do for 20 to 30 minutes in the morning each day. And it makes it far more than just something you do here for an hour to an hour and a half when you come together to freeze uh, on Sunday mornings, weekly. What it does is it gathers up all of your other minutes, it gathers up all of your other hours, and it takes them and makes them worship too. Life is worship. And what I want you to see today is that that's the way it's always been intended to be. So at the beginning of this series on living in the rhythm of grace, we've been going to the very beginning of the Bible and spending a little time there looking at God's design for things. And what I want you to see today pretty plainly is that you were designed to live your life as an all-of-the-time act of worship unto Almighty God. And so then, first of all, God designed you to worship. He designed you to worship whomever or whatever it is that you're looking to to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. We all do it, consciously and subconsciously. So he designed us to worship whomever and whatever it is that satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. And then, secondly, he designed us to only be able to find satisfaction in him. So the question that we're going to be dealing with and just taking with us into this story this morning is who or what are you worshiping with your life? Is it the true and the living God who has designed you only to be satisfied in Him? Or is it something or someone else that by design, it's not their fault, cannot in the end bring you satisfaction? So with all of that in mind, we pick up our study today in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, where we come to the story of the creation of the first man and woman. And I know that if you were with us last week, you're probably thinking, okay, wait a minute, because I thought we dealt, dealt with that last week, because we looked at days six and seven last week, and day six 
On that day, God created man, male and female, in his image after his likeness covered that. Then we looked at day seven, the day of rest, and that's true. But what God does here through Moses is he completes those seven days, and then he says, all right, now we're going to go back to day six for a few minutes. And we're going to talk about the creation of the first man and woman, and we're going to do it in far greater detail that you might see my design. And that by design... Well, among other things, you were made to live your life as an all-of-the-time act of worship unto me. So we pick up our study in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. Moses says this. He says, these are the generations of, and I want to stop and ask this question, of the who. And the reason that I say it that way is because he uses this phrase a lot in all of his writings. So again and again, we see these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, and those are the chapters you typically skip because then they're full of people. And it's always of someone, of a person, isn't it? These are the generations of Adam. We'll see that later in the narrative. Okay, and then there are all these people that descended physically from Adam. These are the generations of Noah. We'll see that even later in the narrative. And then there are all these different people who physically descended from Noah. These are the generations of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You get the idea? This is the only place he uses this phrase, and then he doesn't attach it to a person. He attaches it to a thing, a what, not a who. So he says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, which then begs the question of, well, okay then, Who or what did God, hear the language, give birth to through the heavens or really what we're focused on through the earth? And the answer to that is, all right, plants and animals, but the answer that we're going to focus on is man. In a very, very real sense, the earth is the womb of humanity as all of humanity was resident in that first man. Now, why is that significant? Because it speaks to a longing It's significant, guys, because we bury our dead in the womb of the earth and because every single one of us one day will be buried in the womb of the earth. And what do we say when we do those services? Because I've done probably a hundred of them. So let me just tell you, we say things like ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Do you hear that language? Why is that significant? Because that's the language we're going to read about here in just a second. When we read that the Lord God created the first man, and in him, incidentally, all of the rest of humanity that descends from him, from the dust of the earth. So let's rehearse for a second. Okay. God has designed us to live our lives as an all of the time act of worship unto him. Not just 20 to 30 minutes in the morning, not just something we do on Sunday. You know, hey, did you worship? Yes, I did. I did it every morning and I did it on Sunday. Well, great, but that's meant to spin you off into life, that you might do it all the time. That's the idea. All right, so he's designed us to worship whomever or whatever it is that we look to to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls, and he's designed us to find that satisfaction only in him. Everything else will, at least in the end, utterly disappoint us. So what is God doing? He's coming to us with longings. And he's starting with hope in the face of death. It's like he gets out his little notepad, you know, or he turns to page five in his worship journal where you can take notes, and he just gets out his pen and he says, all right, here's the deal. Longing, hope in the face of death. Okay, here's the deal. I, God, can breathe life into dust and raise up living beings, which, parenthetically, I, God, have promised to do in the end for all of my people. Hope 
in the face of death. Okay, folks, so that's what I, God, can do. Now I'm going to write down other options, colon, and now it's your turn. Who else can do that? God's like, take your time. I got nothing but time. We're, We're good. Seriously, like, come on, other options. Shout one out. Nobody. It's self-evident. There is one alone who breathes life into dust and brings forth living people. So then if that's the case, the Lord is saying, tell me, who or what are you worshiping with your life? He's presenting himself to us. And it's a very attractive presentation. All right, so again, Moses says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. And then we read, and here it is. Here we go. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now, I want you to picture this because the picture is of God kind of going around, if you will, and gathering up the various, various soils or clays of the earth and then sitting down much like a potter and forming the first man out of the clays or the soils of the earth, the first man in whom all of us were resident, or the generations of, if you will. This speaks to a longing. This is not an insignificant moment. Let's think of it this way. What are the different colors of the soils of the earth? I'm going to just run through them for you. You ready? Black, brown, tan, beige, yellowish, whitish, really white probably, reddish. Does this sound familiar to you? They're the colors of the flesh of men. What is God doing in this? He's saying, let me tell you where satisfaction for your dignity comes from, where satisfaction for your sense of self-value and worth comes from. It's not from your pile of dirt. That's just dirt. It's not a badge of pride. It's a badge of humility, irrespective of the color of the pile of dirt. God is saying, listen, it comes from me. Look at what happens next. He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and then the pottery of God, this man and in him, all of us, came to life, and the man became a living creature. It's the life of God in us that makes us dignified and valued. It's a remarkable thought, and that's not unique to any one of us or any group of us. It's universal to humanity. So he raises Adam up from the dust by giving to him and to us the breath of life. And he raises him up, by the way, so that he might, and we might as well, learn to live his and learn to live our lives as all the time acts of worship unto Almighty God. And so again, to that end, he made us with real longings and needs and desires that can only be satisfied in him, like like hope in the face of death, like value that's inherent to us, dignity and whatnot, and a whole bunch more. We just keep going. We read, and the Lord God then stepped away from his potter's wheel, if you will, and he became a gardener. And he planted a garden in this region of land called Eden. So Eden 
is not the garden. Eden is the region of land in which God plants the garden. And I want you to think about the garden for a minute because God is the landscape architect and planter of the garden. Can you imagine with the mind and the imagination of God, which is utterly infinite and which has created the souls of men and knows best how to thrill it? Can you imagine the beauty of that garden created to thrill our souls. It had to be the most beautiful thing that this man has ever seen. We have a longing for beauty in this life, and I'm going to tell you, beauty is a powerful thing. It can move you to awe. It can move you to reverence. It can move you as it's supposed to, incidentally, to worship the Lord God, your highest and greatest good, or it can move you to destroy yourself, depending on what you do with it. It's remarkably powerful. In God, there is beauty that moves you to your highest good and satisfies you as opposed to just creates an insatiable appetite that is never made full. But not just beauty in the garden, I think also safety and security. And I say that because the word garden here means literally to be enclosed or fenced off or protected. Anybody long for that? Safety. Security. Where do you find that? God's like, hey, I can answer that. you, You find it in me. And now notice where this garden was planted. Moses says that it was planted in the east. Now keep in mind that Moses and the Israelites, by the time he writes this, have left recently the land of Egypt where they and their forefathers have been enslaved for 430 years. They understand the thinking of Egypt. So what is the thinking of Egypt? Well, in the thinking of Egypt, the east, and throughout the ancient world, this was also true, not just unique to Egypt. The east is the place of life. The west is the place of death. Why is that? It's obvious, isn't it? The sun rises in the east and it sets. It dies, according to Egyptian mythology, as it does battle with a mythological serpent every single day. It dies, and that explains, incidentally, the red in the sunset, according to their mythology. It's the death of the sun, which is reborn in the east every day and dies in the west, and is reborn in the east, and dies in the west. That's why in Egypt, all of the tombs, the Pharaoh's pyramids, and the Valley of the Kings, and all of that is located on the west side of the Nile River. The east is a place of life. God has created us with a longing for life. And God in His garden is that place of life. And so then we continue... He planted the garden in the east, and there, meaning in that garden, God what? He put the man whom he had formed. And so God formed the man outside of the garden. Then God created the garden. Then God took the man from outside of the garden, and he put him into the garden, which tells you that God and everything in the garden is utterly of grace. This guy doesn't plant the garden. He's given it freely. And what does the garden represent? It represents the place where he lives with the Lord. He walks in the cool of the day with God in the garden. That explains why there's no temple in the garden. The temple throughout the Bible is the place where man would go to meet with God. No, no, no. The whole garden is the temple. And everything he does, he does with God. And everything he does very significantly, he does for God. All of his work, all of his tasks, the way that he relates with his wife, everything is worship unto Almighty God, which is the way that it's designed to be. 
And so then Moses says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so then the man doesn't have to work, at least not to provide food. And so then what else is God in the garden offering? He's offering rest. Can you relate to that? My goodness, just keep the list and compare them to your heart that God has made. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And so then what else does he find? Eternal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, by the way, gave man the opportunity for obedience and service, or to put it differently, for meaningful work. And then we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and the word Eden, incidentally, means um, well-watered, which is another emblem for life, particularly as the Israelites are wandering around in the desert. That's an emblem for life that they come to appreciate as they read these stories, And that river then divided, he says, and it became four rivers. And the name of the first is Pishon, which means rushing. It speaks of abundant life. And it's the one, and don't miss this, that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is what? Because it's outside of the garden. It is not the gift of God to man, and it is not a gift given in grace. So if you're going to get this, you have to go outside of the garden. If you're going to get this, you've got to work for it. If you're going to get this, in fact, you need to dig down deep into the ground. And and what is the under the ground associated with? Is it life or is it death? Simple, isn't it? Startling the comparison that all of a sudden is being made between God and the garden and the stuff outside. We read that it flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And then we read that the gold of that land that's outside of Eden is good. And now we read about something else that's outside of the garden. It's called bdellium. Now, what is that? It's a resin that was highly prized in the ancient world and that was used to embalm bodies. Again, they're coming from Egypt. Egypt is the place of the mummies. It drove the spice trade and not the spaghetti spice trade, the burial spice trade of that day. It's like myrrh which the wise men coming from the east bring to the baby Jesus. It's a burial spice, a curious gift for a newborn child. They understood what they were doing and who they were coming to. It's remarkable. So gold is there, bdellium is there, the onyx stone, which is a precious stone that also has to be mined up out of the earth from the place of the dead, are also there, meaning outside of the garden. But why are they outside of the garden and not inside of the garden? Because inside of the garden, they have no value at all. They're completely irrelevant. Why do you need money and, you know, gems and all of these kind of commercial things when you're in a place of abundance and everything is free and it's all of grace? And my goodness, you certainly don't need burial spices in a place of abundant and eternal life. But it's out here. You see what he's doing? It's subtle, but it's not unclear. He's coming to us on the one hand with with God and all of the satisfaction found in him and creating quite the list that's very telling and consistent with the list that each one of us have for he's made our hearts on the one hand, and he's coming with everything outside of the garden and saying, hey, look, work for this stuff. I understand you live outside of the garden. Be wise and save it and do all of those things that the scriptures teach you to do. But don't look to it to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. It will fail you. Those are satisfied by a God who satisfies them all through Christ and in grace. He gives them to you completely. has nothing to do with your efforts. It's found in His presence. So having told us about that, he speaks of the second river. He says the second river 
is the Gihon, which means to bubble up. Again, it's abundant. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth is the Euphrates. And so then if you can picture this, what he's describing is a world with only one continent, not six. I know that many of us grew up hearing it was seven, but apparently I think Europe and Asia are now combined and they call it six. So just wanted to let you know I didn't get it wrong. Okay. But it's a world with one continent and not six that has a mountain in the middle in the land or the region of Eden. At the top of the mountain in the region of Eden, there's a garden. Flowing out of the garden is a rushing river that breaks off into four rivers that no doubt divide the land of north, south, east, and west like a compass and help, in addition to that mist, water the land. And so the whole of it is green. There's no desert. There's no scarcity. It's what it looks like. I think it's kind of interesting to note that people who study plate tectonics tell us that if you take the six, not seven continents, and you put them all together like a puzzle, they actually fit. You can create one land mass, and so the theory is that at one point there was one land mass, and due to continental drift and whatnot now, there are six or seven, depending on what generation you're from. And we read in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except for one. And here's why. So that you might prove your love for me. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments and joyfully like you you want to. It's not a, ah, no, I got to do that. No, no, no. It's I get to do that. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All right, let's stop and rehearse because that's a lot. So God has designed us to live our lives as all of the time acts of worship unto him. And so then to achieve that goal, he's designed us to worship and serve irresistibly whatever it is or whomever it is that we're looking to, to meet and satisfy the deepest longings of our soul and He's created us only truly to be satisfied in Him. And here's the deal. You know, we can either take His word on that, or we can go off and worship other people and things and learn it by experience. But here's what we can't do. We can't claim that He's sneaking up on us with this. We can't claim that He's hiding this from us because A, worshiping other people and other things again and again and again and again fails. (laughs) And so our experience is true to this. And B, in the first few pages of the Bible, he's coming to us and saying, guys, if you're looking for hope in the face of death, hey, I'm sitting here with my notepad. I'm still waiting for the other option for you to shout it out. I'm the only one who has the breath of life. If you're looking for dignity and inherent value, that comes from my breath and not from that of anyone else. If you're looking for beauty that draws you and captures you and moves you and awes you and brings you to reverence and to do the very thing I've created you to do, which is to worship me, I'm the source. Safety, security, light, abundant life, eternal life, meaningful work, and rest. Guys, God has designed us to live our lives as all of the time acts of worship unto Him. And the only question is, are we doing that? Like who or what are we right now, all of us, me and you, worshiping with our lives? 
And here, I think, is at least a couple of ways to try to figure that out. So test number one, what's at the center of your life? What is it really like if you're really honest and you really analyze things and you kind of get below the surface and you start moving toward your motivations? If you're thoughtful, which is so difficult to do today, we're way too busy to be introspective. But what a loss that is. If you're really introspective, what is that thing that's at the center of your life that everything and everyone else in your life, including you, bows down to and works around? What is that? Is it the true and the living God who alone can satisfy you or something or someone else? And test number two, I think you can discover this by taking a look at who you're becoming. What are you becoming like? And here's the reason I say that, because the Scripture comes to us and says, okay, principle of worship, you become just like the people and things that you worship. So Psalm 115, verse 2. The psalmist says this, he says, why should the nations, meaning the unbelieving nations who worship people and things other than the true and the living God, say to those of us who worship the true and the living God, but who is admittedly invisible? You can see their gods, you can visit them. It's a difference. But why should the nation say, the psalmist says, where is their God? And now he answers the question. He says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But now he draws the contrast. He says, they're idols. Let's talk about them. He says, they are made of silver and gold, things located outside of the garden that are not given to us by the grace of God and that we need to go into the realm of the dead to procure. They're made of silver and gold. They're inanimate. You have to dig them up out of the ground because they have no power to come forth from the ground like Christ on their own, these gods. They're lifeless. They're empty. They're the work of human hands, these idols, he says, and as a result, these false gods have mouths. But get this, they do not speak. And you say, yeah, but I need occasionally at least to get a word from my God. Well, if that's your God you know, that's a longing that's going to go unanswered. They have eyes, but they do not see. You're like, yeah, yeah, but I need to know that my God sees me. Well, you're not going to be able to know that. that's That's not going to work. They have ears, but they do not hear your cries for help or your songs of praise. They have noses, but they do not smell. So what he's saying is they're completely insensible. They have no understanding or senses of anything that's happening around them and very significantly around me or around you. They have hands, but they do not feel or help. They have feet, but they do not walk or run to your aid. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And then here's the punchline. He says, those who make them become what? Like them. And so do all who trust in them. What is he saying? He's saying, look, you become what you worship, and if what you worship is lifeless and empty, you become lifeless and empty. And like that lifeless, empty God, you have a mouth, but, you know, I mean, do you say anything really significant in the end? You have eyes, but do you see what's really valuable? You have ears. Do you hear the voice of the Spirit? You have a nose. Do you sense the fragrance of of Christ or the fragrance of death apart from Christ. You have hands, but the work of your hands will die completely with you. There's no enduring effect of your life. You have feet and they take you wherever you want to go now, but where will they take you in the end? That's the idea. God has designed us to live our lives as all of the time acts of worship unto Him. And so then the question is, all right, well, am I doing that? Like who or what am I worshiping with my life? What does my life say? And what is 
what I'm becoming, say, because you become like what you worship, which incidentally, and this is awesome, is also true with regard to the worship of Jesus. The gospel saves and it molds and it forms as we learn to live for Christ through this rhythm of grace. We become, by His Spirit and grace, more and more and more like Him. And you say, yeah, well, where is He in this story? He's next. Keep reading and see if you can find Him. Verse 18, Moses says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, which is jarring because everything's been good until now. It is good, it is good, it is good, it's very good. And something, suddenly something is not good. And what is it that's not good? For the man to be alone. So what's the answer to that? It's God in grace making for the sinless man a bride. A helper, suitable, equal to, adequate for. That's what the word means, him. So what you're expecting now is that God's going to do that because something's not good. That creates this tension and you're kind of freaking out like, what? Something's not good. And God himself is given the answer, which is him creating a bride for the sinless man, but he doesn't do that. He does not behave the way that we would expect him to behave. Guessing you figured that out already in life. But he always behaves in wisdom. There's always a purpose behind what he does. So he violates our expectations and does this instead. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And then what? He paraded them before the man. He brought them to the man to see what he, the man, would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, and this is the whole point of this exercise, there was not found a helper fit for him. Do you get what's happening here? The problem is the man is alone. The answer is, I, God, will make a bride for him. But the man's not ready for that yet. So how do I prepare him for this? I got it. I'm going to parade the animals with their helper, male and female. So here comes Mr. and Mrs. Dog, and then Mr. and Mrs. Cat, and Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, and Mr. and Mrs. Bear. It's very tedious. Mr. and Mrs. You know, whatever, Hippo, etc., etc. It just goes on and on until all of a sudden it dawns on Adam by means of observation that he alone is in fact alone. See how that works? It's brilliant. He realizes, hey, there's a Mr. Man, but there's no Mrs. Bruce Walke says, rather than squandering, and if you're a husband, hear this, rather than squandering his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative, God waits until Adam is prepared through this exercise to appreciate the gift of woman. And now, look for Jesus. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a what? Deep sleep to fall upon this sinless man named Adam. Sleep in the New Testament very significantly is used as a metaphor of death. But it's used as a metaphor of death for God's people. Lazarus dies, and in John 12, or John 11 rather, Jesus says to his disciples, hey guys, Lazarus is asleep and, you know, we're going to go wake him up. And they're like, no, well, he's been sick. You should let him sleep. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. But sleep is something you expect to wake up from. And Jesus has the capacity to raise the dead, to wake him up. Paul says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. They're not taking a nap. They're dead. They're buried. They're gone. They're dust. What is he saying? 
for the believer in Christ, those who are the recipients of the promises of God, the God who breathes and animates dust. Okay, sleep and death are a lot more alike than we think. So with that as a category, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the sinless man named Adam, and while he slept, God pierced his side and took one of his ribs and then closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman. And so out of the sacrifice and suffering of the sinless man, God creates a bride for the sinless man, then he wakes the sinless man up. He rises from his sleep, which was deep, and he brought her to the man, and then the man waxed poetic. He's a total show-off. He's a romantic. Remember, he's the perfect man, so, you know, it's my excuse. But it's really beautiful because he's a picture of Jesus, and I want you to hear the first three words. He says, this at last. Wow. You can feel the wow. This at last, God had created this great longing. This at last, he says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's born out of my suffering at my expense, and he's overjoyed. At last, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what is that if not a picture of Christ? in whom we find satisfaction of our greatest longing and need, which is what? Forgiveness and restoration in relationship with our Heavenly Father who is our God and in whom we then find satisfaction of everything else. It's remarkable. It's a picture of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who was caused to sleep the sleep of death by God, His Heavenly Father, and whom, while He was asleep in the sleep of death, was pierced in exactly and only one place, which was His side. Hands and feet were done while he's alive. Out of the wounding of Christ, out of the suffering of Christ, out of the death of Christ, out of the piercing of Christ, what does God do? We heard it. Ryan read it from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born. On him our iniquities were laid. By his wounds we were healed. Those kinds of things. He suffers and dies that we might be forgiven and made new and made clean, washed, beautiful, and a fit companion for Jesus, which is a very amazing thought and speaks of our destiny. And so then our Lord brought Jesus, He awakened Him from the sleep of death, did He not? That He might offer forgiveness and eternal life and fashion a bride for Him out of me and out of you. It's remarkable, guys. God has designed us to live our lives as all of the time acts of worship unto Him. Therefore, by design, we worship whomever or whatever it is that we're really looking to to satisfy our longings. And by design as well, He's the only one who can do that. So who or what are you worshiping with your life? Is it the true and the living God who alone can satisfy you, or is it something or someone else who by design, it's not their fault, by design cannot do it. And what does your life say? And what does what you're becoming say? Because you become what you worship. And here's what we want to do together this year. Through the rhythm of grace, learning to live in it, we want to become more like Jesus. We want to experience Him. So go think on that. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We pray, God, that you would give us an accurate picture of you, of your wisdom, of your goodness, of your judgment, of your holiness, of your righteousness, of your mercy, of your grace, of your power, of your presence, Lord by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we might see you and ourselves, and then find relief from that trauma through the vision of your Son, the sinless one who suffered and died, who was buried and who is risen, that all of the offenses we've committed, all of of our stuff might be forgiven, all of our debt might be paid, Lord, that we might be healed in body and soul in the end. That we might know that everything we long for, we find in you. Satisfy us, we pray, Lord, and let us, in the satisfaction that we find in you, worship you by the way that we live, by the way that we relate to one another, by the selfless ways that we give ourselves away, knowing that our security is in you and our safety is in you, by the beauty that we seek and don't. Lord, by all of these things, let us worship you as all of the time acts of worship, bringing you glory and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.